poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG is a former StarCraft World Champion and the former owner of a little poker stream you may or may not have heard of live at the bike, Wayne D22 Soso Shang. Wayne has lived quite the life navigating the worlds of professional video gaming and then making the natural segue into the world of poker. It's probably an overlooked quality of both aspiring professional poker players and longtime pros that an inordinate percentage of them tend to have a major interest in some form of competitive gaming before venturing into the world of poker. Wayne is one of the select few human beings in the world who has performed at a very high level in both disciplines for a very long time. He's even managed to invent a brand new casino poker game that'll be hitting the pit floors in the very near future, a project that's been in the pipeline for a half decade thus far. And in today's conversation with Wayne D22 Soso Chang, you're going to learn Wayne's origin story as one of the OG professional video gamers in the world, some behind the scenes news and stories regarding Live at the Bike, what the poker world was like for Wayne coming up in Southern California, and much, much more. So now, without any further ado, I bring to you world class gamer, professional poker player, and businessman, Wayne D22 Soso Chang. Wayne, welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How you doing? How's it going, Brad? Going okay. Just, uh, you know, like we said, a little morning work before more work. Yeah, it's it, it appears as if you never sleep. You're, people say that I'm constantly releasing new content and getting things done and like you seem like you're running laps around me what my coworkers say but i i do sleep i do sleep that's that's why i was propping so i could sleep while i prop i'm just kidding don't don't ever say that i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> no i i just i work a lot and um there's some instances incidents sorry instances incidents that happened like you know, maybe a decade ago and then maybe eight years ago that just like, I just feel like I'm running out of time. <laughs> gotcha. And that's, you know, we, we have to dive deep into that. You know, we'll put a pin in that thread, but certainly want to circle back to that. And let's go farther back beyond that to start the show and just talk about, you know, talk about your journey through the world of poker, how you found poker, uh, how old you are and how long you've been in the game. Um, so even before that, I think some people know my background. I did, um, I was an esports pioneer and I guess some say with a legend, like uh, Command and Conquer was the first game I competed in, was number one ranked one-on-one -on -one in teams, Warcraft 2, number one in teams, Starcraft World Champion, Magic the Gathering. I wasn't really my main game, but I had a lot of buddies. Shouts of Brian Weissman, Hoisin Shui, or like my mentors. And uh, we made like two pro tours. Um, and then it gets to a point like professional gaming was not 
um, very mature. So while we could make a living, it wasn't like retirement money. Um, wasn't like it know, is and, today with these young kids. Yeah. Uh, that being said, you still need to be, I, I interact with a lot of them, the, the contemporary esports guys, and you still have to be like all the way at the top to like make good money. Um, and it's very winner take all, like, you know, a lot of sports, like, um, the people at the top make the big chunk. Yeah. Um, and the people that play like the most popular games too, that's another component to it. It's very huge. So, um, a lot of us, you know, in the early two thousands in various games just went different directions. Um, people like, you know, Thresh, Dennis Fong, JC, Chess.com. They went the entrepreneurship route. People like, you know, myself, um, you know, Dion Patry, Elki, like others, like we went to poker. To this day, we don't know the right answers, <laughs> but like we're, we all seem okay. I'm probably lagging uh, the most behind them, but um, yeah, everybody's just from that generation is doing pretty well. And I'm very proud of them because we always wondered we were the first generation of, you know, professional gamers. We always, there's no documentation of what would happen to us. A lot of us dabbled into poker and it was an important chapter in our lives. And some of us let go. For me, I was unable to manifest my projects in time. So I think poker is going to be part of me for the rest of my life. Um, Whereas some of, some of our peers have let it go. How, how old are you now, Wayne? I'm 43. 43. And early 2000s, you were, you were early 20s. What led to your career, you know, playing video games and esports, becoming a world champion in StarCraft? Like that, that one is, I know, probably a really big deal even back then. People still play StarCraft competitively. It's like, it's a huge, huge game. Yeah, StarCraft was... Um, probably the quintessential game launching esports, obviously mostly expanded in South Korea. So, you know, to age myself, about 1995, uh, the commercialization of the internet, the internet was obviously invented way before the commercialization, but that's around when, especially in the Bay Area, things started, you know, popping up. Like uh, Google's founded in 1998, Yahoo before. You know, just like a lot of brilliant entrepreneurs, you know, that was you know, when Elon Musk started, he started with Zip2. And um, obviously at that time, before you could just, you know, if you're playing Nintendo, you could just, your friends would come over or you're in the LAN party, then your friends could hook up a bunch of computers. All of a sudden now you could play anybody in the world. So um, I think it's Jeremy Rusnak started Cases Ladder first with Command and Conquer. And then branched off into Warcraft 2 and IGL.net is, is still around to this day. But um, that was like the hub for player versus player games back then. So um, being the young Thundercat I was when I think I was 16 at the time. So I just like battled everybody, you know, got to the top. And then there wasn't much left for Command and Conquer. And Warcraft 2 at the time was a little bit more popular. So I branched over there. And I hadn't quite matured in Warcraft 2 yet. And then StarCraft came out. At that time, I was like, I'm quitting video games, man. This is <laughs> taking too much time. Uh, but then one of my buddies, Super Peon, he, um, he 
bought the game for me and sent it to my house. <laughs> and the rest was history. So uh, that year I, I, you know, did well in ladder. Um, I actually had quit for the summer and then came back. And then the first StarCraft World Championship, one of my closest friends, who's the co-founder of chess.com, Jay Severson, actually won. Like, he told me to register, and I didn't register in time because I wasn't really active. And then I ended up being the commentator, and, uh, you know, he won. And, you know, he's one of my closest friends, so I'm obviously happy for them. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, yo, man, I could do that too. <laughs> So then I started competing and I got a job at gamers.com, which was uh, founded by Thresh, the first professional gamer, the Quake world champion. Um, and yeah, it was just like a dream at that age because you could just play games, like write about them. Like back then it was like game pro, like EGM, you know, all those magazines. And it, it's just like, when you're a kid, you're like, Oh my God, it'd be so cool to like, do this stuff and it was i i remember game pro magazine i had a subscription and best time of the month was getting my game pro in yeah. the mailbox <laughs> um opening it up and just seeing seeing what's coming seeing the cheat codes the strategies all the breakdowns i mean that was i have very fond memories of game pro magazine so i have a legacy and i mean jump starting like StarCraft, like I was the front end on content because this was before replay. So I, because I was a competitor and I would be media too. So I would just, when I go to them, I would, you know, play and then write the game reports and release them instantly before Blizzard even could. Uh, so, you know, it, it's really lost in the past right now, but, and StarCraft obviously doesn't need me, but I really jump started like the, um, the professional scene by uh, being media as well as a competitor. So that was incredibly fun. My salary that year was $28,800. So bank. Yeah. For, for that age, no degree and to do what I was doing anyway. And like, I was so passionate about it. Like I was like, Oh my God, this is insane. And I didn't realize how little money that was back then. How did it but, feel like, you know, there's this, you mentioned the commercialization of the internet and yeah. gaining the ability to compete against people on a wide scale. Like yeah. how, how did it feel, you know, going from competing on your Super Nintendo or N64, Sega Oof. Genesis, to then going to compete against players from all around the world? Um, so, you know, in my local group, I don't think it's much of a surprise. I was destroying just about everybody. Uh, Dennis Fong and I never actually clashed. Well, we don't really play the same games except for like Street Fighter 2 in which he's, he's better than me. And like, I guess select people in my groups, like one of my best friends, Eric Wu, he would, uh, he's better than me at Dr. Mario, but he also owns the game. <laughs> Whereas like, I would just be visiting, but he just like would just just like hate playing against me because like I found some, you know, niche strategies, like imbalances in the game that were uh, not fun. Um, but yeah, just like, you know, you, as probably poker players are gamers at heart too. So they have the same sentiment. You just keep playing if you're winning and you just keep going up and up until you reach an echelon where you're the best or you're like, Oh, everyone around me is just better than me. Yeah, and um, you, you you stand no chance. You have no hope. 
Yeah. So then, um, like we talked about when the land parties came out, like uh, uh, one of my buddies, the MIT twins, we call them Stanley and Roger Hugh, like my, I guess my competitive gaming career really started there because we would, they would hook up the uh, computers through LAN and we would play Warcraft 1, Doom 2, and Command and Conquer, and then I think Warcraft 2. And, you know, I was performing the best, obviously, at the time. And then the internet came out and then Stanley was like, hey, there's this thing called Kali, like K-A-L-I. And then, you know, Cases Ladder came out. So, like, everything just became, you know, one one step at a time. Like, you could just, like, play everyone on the internet. And then uh, it was really uh, <laughs> low-key back then, and I guess ghetto because you have to manually like be like hey do you want to challenge you want to play a ladder match <laughs> then uh i actually shout out to my buddy jay severson happy birthday like he i i joked in an email like two days ago i was like it seems like yesterday we used to you know battle each other in cases ladder <laughs> and the thing is like he and i are total scrappers like whatever rank we are we'll take challengers there's some people that would just like hit, get a high rank and just never take any challenges how come? Um, obviously, well, they just want to rank hoard. They get to a certain level and like don't want to risk it. Yeah, or just yeah. Once you get there, you just like squat. But now because there's automatic, you know, matchmaking, obviously that takes care of that. And there's actual world world championships. So there's a uh, one caveat that like is interesting because like being number one ranked and being a world champion are actually two different things. I mean, it's. Like people who are familiar with sports and esports know this, but I think the general public doesn't really know the difference. So being number one ranked is a little bit like potentially like GPA because uh, multiple people in the year can have 4.0s. Just like the number one ranked player can change throughout the month or year. But the world championships is like, there's no excuses, you know, everyone participates. And it's also when you're fighting for rank, not everyone's active. <clears throat> That's one of the big things in poker that when people are talking about the best of all time or whatever, first of all, like we know, poker is almost impossible to judge ability. Winning has more to do with beating up weaker players than, you know, battling the best. So when, you know, Phil Ivey and Patrick Antonius in the recent 25K WPT, yeah, it's a small sample size, but still the fact that, you know, they battled the top, they were doing stuff that was hashtag not solver approved. <laughs> not everyone's active at the same time, like the competitive players. So it's really difficult to tell who would be like number one ranked. And of course, in poker, like who's the best, but, you know, back to esports, it's like, yeah, if Dennis Fong's not playing first person shooters and somebody is ranked number one, well, you're not playing against one of the best of all time so if the world championship comes around no one has an excuse not who doesn't you know everyone who participates has a has a chance to win as a competitor so that's something that's carries over to poker i guess um it's like obviously i'm flattered to be on this podcast and like i me and uh i forgot some uh, somebody else responding in your twitter feed was like chasing poker mediocrity <laughs> it's like even in like my prime, I don't think I was ever considered like the best at poker. Like I would play in the biggest stakes in the room or the site, but like, you know, 
like what what the hell is the best like nobody knows it's poker's like very difficult to define well who can quantify wow. it right like yeah it's, exactly it's exceptionally hard to quantify and like only yeah. the best players can really even quantify i think that's an interesting it's an interesting thing about like excellence or greatness in any endeavor is that the people that you're looking for respect from are your contemporaries and there's very very <laughs> very few people who can even who can even see like all the little nuances and all the yep. things that are going on at the highest of high levels so like you can't really make a poll and have it oh, yeah. have it reflect like who the best player is i mean it, it's just it's and i mean it's subjective too because like there's multiple games and then it's just poker is one of those things where like you know i, I did run like a, a tournament like hashtag poker goat with twitter twitter votes maybe a year and a half ago and i mean phil ivy basically crushed everybody like it wasn't really a contest <laughs> phil ivy just ran right through it but i mean still there's there's lots of components right like and then like you said the active players versus the inactive players i mean there's like you know yeah. cole south in my opinion is one of the greatest poker players of all time and he's like not even active in poker anymore and people really it, it's kind of sad to me how many people are not aware of cole south in this day and age like the new breed poker players well, as we know, the people in, and, you know, I'm running live at the bike now, so I am at the forefront of this, but always the people you see on camera are only the tip of the iceberg. So back to Phil Ivey, like, even if he isn't the best, I don't think anyone's going to debate. He isn't like one of the best. Yeah, yeah. One of the best or sure. in contention for one of the best. So I, you know, we can lay that one to rest. Unlike say Phil Helmuth, which a lot of people have their freaking opinions on. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, just. Yeah, there's a lot of people off camera that are just like phenomenal that potentially are better than most of the people you see on camera. That being said, being on camera is a completely different animal. Everybody plays differently. When you could hide all your tricks and abilities versus be studied, you know, obviously that's like a big disadvantage when you could be studied. You're like essentially, you know, everybody who goes into play against Helmuth or Phil Ivy has a plan. <laughs> and it's a one way street of like, I mean, obviously, like people like Phil Helmuth and Phil Ivy have done this for what, 20 plus years. So they kind of know a range of what to expect when somebody has a plan against them. But it's still like, still sucks, you know, like, the more information somebody has on you versus the other way around, you know, it just. But it's good news. It's good news that, you know, Phil Ivy is very, very observant and very, very good at like constructing strategies yeah. on the fly and kind of putting the pieces together as to what somebody's doing so that he yeah. can counteract it. Um, I, I would say too, that like, if it's like trick based and exploit based, like a major component of your strategy, if you're trying to play higher level players, it's probably going to be problematic putting game tape of the things, you know, the exploits that you're making that are like way far out there because then, then players have like clear visibility of like, Oh, um, this is what they're doing in this spot. And now I can just construct a great counter strategy because I have it on tape. And like, if, if I'm an unknown, then they don't really know how I'm constructing. And so like it, it's, it is an edge, you know, in developing counter strategies specifically against certain opponents. 
Uh, with that said, I do think that like a lot of the strategies these days are highly resilient, even to players, you know, even if you know what's coming, um, the strategy is still very resilient, very powerful, and it's hard to like counteract and find a hole and find the exploit. So, you know, I, I think that like it's, there is an edge, um, there is an edge, but I don't think the edge is like massive in all cases, if that makes sense. Yeah, which is why a lot of us, uh, you know, like a lot of poker players who either fully play for a living or have a percentage of their income playing poker had to adapt, like, you know, the privatization of games or, um, you know, in my case, like propping slash hosting or, you know, doing live of the bike or starting training sites, you know, doing podcasts. There's like a lot of different avenues to supplement. Whereas like back then the game was a lot easier and there was a lot more pride of like, I'm not doing that stuff or, you know, sponsorships too. And um, you know, like what I found is doing other stuff has made it more fulfilling. And I think we mentioned this too, is like I have a healthier relationship with poker now than um, I did in the past. Like when all there is left is to increase your net worth and play the next highest stakes and stay at the highest stakes while some people like say Phil Ivy, um, Garrett Adelstein comes to mind too, like thrive on that. Like it made me very unhappy. Um, I wasn't creating or building something and this is not universal obviously, but I, I want to like, I want to be a competitor and I want to build things. So it's like a dichotomy. I think a lot of human beings struggle with where we we're not just one thing we have we want to pursue many things, but we only have 24 hours in a day and 365 days in a year and we have to choose. Yeah. You're speaking my language here, Wayne. Yeah. I mean, this is, <laughs> you know, uh, doing three podcasts a week, soon to be four writing newsletters, doing private coaching sessions, wanting to play poker, uh, creating poker courses and strategies and like getting heavy into research mode. I mean, there's only so many hours in a week and oh, yeah. You, you can only slice up your time in certain ways. And for me, like poker's taken a back seat this year because of all of my other responsibilities. And also because like, if I'm going to play poker, I want to be in a good poker mindset where like yeah. mind, body, uh, spirit, everything is all flowing together. Everything's healthy and I can dedicate 100% of my energy towards playing. Uh, if I try to play a session at like 7 p.m. after recording multiple podcasts, doing private coaching sessions, like it's just I, I'm not going to perform at the level that I want to, which it means that I just haven't been able to play that much. But I mean, yeah, you're right. Like there is this the, the thing is, too, like when you build stuff and when you start um, going out on a limb and start a podcast or start doing some content creation, start a Twitch stream, all these things, I do think that like it complements playing poker very, very well. And also yeah. kind of brings the passion back to playing um, where it's like, cool. Like I get to play poker for, you know, four or five hours. Like this is actually fun now. Whereas before it's like, you know, we're on the grind and like, I basically do this all day, every day. It's definitely better. Like, you know, I'm in a phase of, as we talked about, I have, you know, startups or whatever and live of the bike. So I have to supplement income by like forcing myself to play. But the thing is when you're not playing, like I'm like Sean Snyder and I, and Lyman and a bunch of other people are in a very luxury position in which we can half ass mid stakes and Pete, you know, doing well, 
not everybody has that luxury. And I think all of us have found uh, three of us and a few, many others have found like doing other stuff while beating up on mid stakes is a more pleasant lifestyle than battling high stakes, which, you know, to all the credit to the high stakes battlers, but, um, it's, it's a rough life. Like during quarantine, like I had, or all, all during live with the bike, my startups and propping, like I had a bit of a one-way competition with myself because nobody threw shade at me. Like, well, some mid stakes people did threw shade at me about like my ability, but cause when I hadn't say been mid active. Stakes, what do you mean by mid stakes? What do you consider? Mid stakes? Uh, I guess like five, five, to five, 10, no limit. And like, you know, 20, 40 to 40, 80 limit. And like 25, 50 mixed games, something around those zones. Cool. Um, so I I was wondering myself if I could, because I clearly have an excuse slash reason I'm not being active, but I over quarantine, I was like, can I even just play on my own anymore? <laughs> and I I did. I I played in private games, played online. I'm doing well online on global poker. Um People are asking me why I don't reveal my graph. I'm like, oh, in due time, not right now. But like, people are definitely watching my shark scope and uh, kind of wondering. But just like we, the conversation we had earlier with the tactics, like, I have a long online experience, like 10 years of online, 10 plus years. So I always hear with about the solvers, RTA, and stuff, which Global Poker doesn't allow. But um, I was like, oh, my God, can I even like compete on this anymore? So I jump in and I'm like, oh, this is fine. And then I, I did well. I'm like, oh, I'm probably running good, which, you know, obviously, if you win, you are running good. There's no way around, regardless of how well you play. Um, and then I just kept refining and I kept telling people around me, there's no way I could keep up these stats. There's no way to keep up with these stats. But if you see like, my stats just keep getting better and better because, you know, we're adjusting or I'm adjusting and as poker players, competitive poker players, you're just always adjusting. And at some point, you know, it's either going to go downhill or it's going to normalize. So yeah, I took care of that. Um, And also playing high stakes, no limit is one of the most toxic environments. (laughs) Like I just ran into this right now. It's August, 2021, even not playing in these environments, the, the toxicity just like spills off. What do you mean by toxic? Like people just like yelling at each other and just like the politics, the politics. I, I feel like, and Nolan Holden is just more personal. Like you get like competitive and personal. Like when it comes to like PLO or limit Holdem, there's so many suck out. Suck outs are so much more common and situations are like, you know, you could blame the game and blame the cards and Nolan Holdem, you can only really blame yourself or your opponent. Tell me, tell me about your experience about getting yelled at in the higher stakes games. Because like my my personal experience is like 1020 NL and you know 2550 NL or 2040 no limit. Um, those live games have uh, always been pretty pleasant to me without very minimal yelling. It's like if I go play like one two no limit, that's when people start yelling. Like that's where What's- people are out of control. What city are you in? I'm in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, when I when I put in my volume, I lived in LA. I lived at Commerce. Um, so I was playing like the the 10, 20 games. This is probably 2013 or so. Um, okay. I mean, You're just after my time. Yeah. You mentioned too, like 
like Garrett because obviously Garrett's been on live at the bike and his profile's like gone through the roof. And I mean, yeah. like Garrett battled in those games like every day. And basically, like mm-hmm. you, you mentioned, how people are unknown. And like Garrett was an unknown, right? He's just a guy that plays in the cash games at Commerce Casino day in and day out. And then he went on Survivor <laughs> and that raised his <laughs> profile some. And then live at the bike, he kind of became, you know, he was in the consciousness of cash game players sort of nationwide. So you know how, like, I think How I Met Your Mother had this uh, concept, like, revertigo. Like, you remember somebody as kind of the initial time you meet them. Mm-hmm. So, like, Garrett and I weren't, I mean, we obviously have, like, a more working relationship. We're friends now. But, like, uh, back then, like, I just saw him and people would call him, like, a fish. I'm like, are you kidding me? This guy's, like, really good. And then I separately found out he was G-Man online. I'm like, okay, this guy clearly is, you know, good. But like when he four bets like 10, four off and shows, you know, then people think he's like dumb, but he's obviously considering other variables that I don't, I don't know. I mean, people know enough about him. I don't want to throw him under the bus, <laughs> but stuff, but yeah, I mean, he's got extra abilities, intuition and talent that um, many people don't have. It's not exclusive to him, but like many people just like, I, I don't have that ability. I think, I mean, Garrett is intuitively very high level. Like he thinks about human behavior in very granular, very precise, very, very, very high level. Like any sort of data point that comes on his radar, he's going to try to quantify it and prioritize it. And always in the world of poker, the people who, when somebody's doing something that they don't understand, that seems to be a strong player. Like, it seems like the most foolish thing you can do is to say that they suck or that they're a fish. Because, like, clearly they're doing something that you have no visibility or awareness of that is sort of above your pay grade. So, like, (laughs) you should start trying to figure out what they might know or what they must be considering so that they can, you know, forebet the 10-4 off in a specific situation. Yeah, I mean, like, I started live and then when online came out and there was the boom, I did that. And then, you know, I would go on and off and live. And at this juncture, I guess I'm more of a dilettante. Like I don't really associate with one or the other, but I'm to the average person or the average player. I'm obviously way better, but to competitive players, I'm kind of just like, I'm just okay. Like, I guess, um, well, at both. Let's yeah. go back. Let's go back, you know, uh, to your story and entering the poker space after, you know, you win a world championship in Starcraft. Obviously this yeah. is like, pretty big news and from there did you start transitioning into poker like what what did the timeline look like no so this was about like april 1999 there's like i guess one of the all-time natural highs in my life i don't think i could uh beat that for like a lot of reasons a lot of things were you know like free spirit things were going away i was really into the infancy of esports and k-pop which are very their histories are very intertwined and I just competed for that year. And then the world championships at the end of the year, I got third place. And, uh, you know, Guillaume Patry was just definitively better than me. I mean, he was always better than me, but like the one I won, I just like, I got him like two out of three in one matchup. And then, um, yeah, it just, it got to the point, like he was 16, I was 20. 
So it's it's all downhill. <laughs> like the 16-year-old's just going to get better and better. The 20-year-old's just going to get worse and worse. Yeah, they fall off so, a cliff. It's like uh, when they hit 20, it's like a running back hitting 30, like in the esports world. They just straight oh, yeah. down. So I'm like, while I didn't capitalize on, say, like money in esports, I'm very lucky that you can Google everything I've done. And uh, I did, you know, I had great years, like a lot of fun, a lot of great memories. And I made money. Like in, in retrospect, a lot of competitors didn't make money. <laughs> that's, that's bad to spend a lot of time. I mean, hopefully their achievements can be Googled. That's then it's a consolation prize. <laughs> I mean, they're 16 years old playing video games. Like that's the consolation prize. Like you, you really love playing video games when you're a teenager yeah. and to do it at a high level and get any recognition would just be like icing on the cake. I mean, I played lots of video games for free <laughs> yeah. and loved every second of it. Yeah. There's a lot of positive reinforcement. I just like connected with, uh, MM on, um, live of the bike. He's a big fan of final fantasy seven, which, you know, had a big impact on me as well. they will be not, not being competitive game. So yeah, I, I want to credit like three people, um, back then for setting a good example to have me grow up once Dennis Fong, like I mentioned, like thresh, he was the first professional gamer. Had he not founded gamers.com, I would have a job or even like necessarily taken the, I, I, you know, inevitably would take it the leap to come to competitive gaming. But uh, just his presence probably inspired and allowed other people to think, hey, this is a thing. This is possible. Um, the other one, Jay Severson, who I mentioned, he, um, we scrapped in Warcraft 2 and Starcraft. He was the first vanilla Starcraft world champion. I was the first Brood War, Starcraft Brood War world champion. He's one of my closest friends this day. He just grind, he had a job. He was playing and he was going to college. He's like, out of everyone I know, like people can talk about Elon Musk and Bill Gates or blah, blah, blah. Like Jay Severson's my guy. He just like didn't come from like high privilege or whatever and just like just busted his ass. And he was the co-founder of Chess.com with Eric Alabest. Obviously, Chess.com is freaking huge now. Now he's doing Party Mafia. And then the other guy's Brian Weissman, who is my mentor in Magic the Gathering. He was like three or four years older than me. So like when we cross paths, the age gap, you know, obviously when you're a teenager, if somebody's in a teenager, and somebody's in college, the age gap's like larger, but he, you know, he had his eye on me, he mentored me. And then we went on to go on to two pro tours and he was the executive producer of Path of Exile. So I had a lot of these like six, like successful competitive gamers to, uh, and they're all older than me, like to various degrees, like one, one to three or four years. So I had them to kind of like model, Hey, what should I potentially be doing next? So I was one of the last people to kind of like leave out of our, you know, group in Silicon Valley to like leave professional gaming. And i and that time the dot-com crash around 2000 happened. So I really had to think what to do at a, at a, Ex at the time, and her dad was just like, "You got to finish school because you know I'm Asian." But and I don't think he was wrong, but like it's definitely a life choice. So I went back down um, to San Diego, UC San Diego. You know, tried to grind the computer science. Some stuff happened in my life that maybe we consider a lot. Then Maria Ho pre poker. I found out later she played in whatever when she was a teen, but like really, um, you know, she wanted it. She wanted to be a competitive player. 
I just was happy to make money from it. <laughs> so we would like start at Barona or at Sequan and like three, $3, $6 limit hold them. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. Like online came out, the moneymaker boom came out when the moneymaker boom happened. Like we all had some background. So when people were flooding in, we were better than them. So, you know, things were easy. Like I think Sean Snyder and a bunch of people, you know, Garrett, Andy, like they were all, we were all part of that, that boom. And then, uh, as you know, one by one, people drop out, they go bust or don't want to do this anymore. And <laughs> yeah, do something else. You know, I think the, my favorite story about that is after black Friday, 2011, first place that I went to was commerce and was like grinding and a bunch of young, young kids there, you know, I'm probably 20 mid twenties at this point. And we're like talking at the, the 10, 20, you know, steak. And I think four of them I played against on ultimate bet. Uh, like they all knew each other's screen names. And then that was the last time I saw any of them. I think, you know, the only one that like is still around that I know from like the UB days specifically is like Hank the Tank, um, Hank Zarnecki and all the, all the other players. Like I have no idea what happened to them. They thought if they, if they continued playing poker, it wasn't live poker. Yeah. Um, like we'll backtrack to Sean Snyder. So I crossed paths with him and like, I don't know, 2004, five, six, somewhere around there. I was playing mainly online. I was on uh, all the major sites like Party Poker. I did my best on Hollywood Poker. Um, I didn't do start Poker Stars very much because you had to like to reap the rewards you need Supernova Elite. And I just wasn't like, I never wanted to make a commitment. And then uh, before Black Friday, I was mainly on Full Tilt again, like because I didn't want to make the commitment. I did have a Poker Stars account in case the game was good. The games were good on, uh, on there and just didn't care so much about the rake back. Um, I don't know why yeah, when, I, I never really liked stars personally. I don't like, the <laughs> I guess software. it was like the software. Like I didn't yeah, like the colors exactly. and the software. I was like, I just, this just, I don't like this. Well, did you have this problem where you would click like one of the buttons and it just wouldn't register? So I didn't like, play hardly any MTTs. Like I played pure cash and yeah. almost no volume on stars really ever. Um, just didn't like that. Like the games weren't that great. And oh yeah, the games were definitely tougher on stars than full tilt. That was another reason too. But like, I would click like raise call or folder and it just wouldn't register. And I would just like be slamming my mouse. I'm like, what, what the heck's going on? You know? Yeah. Especially when you want to call an all in and you have the nuts. Right. But <laughs> kind of important that the mouse works in those moments. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, like we have a lot of, we and a bunch of poker players, a lot of cross our own history. And then, like you said, when Black Friday happened, I mainly played limit and seven cards that I dabbled in no limit. And I, you know, I ran into uh, Garrett, DJF and a bunch of other people that like Brian Kim. And I, I don't remember like everybody or like Bryce Yaki, just a ton. And we just like, we're trying to navigate, you know, the poker live poker world after Black Friday. I did like the cake network was still around. So I was able to like play on the cake network. Like it went up to 1020 and L. And then, um, you know, slowly they had issues just like full tilt. And <laughs> so, you know, you go where the, uh, where when you win, they actually pay you, which was live. 
pretty much yeah yeah pretty much i mean i was like i was already burned and so for me it was like i'm just i didn't play online poker for probably three or four years like really until until bitcoin kind of entered the equation it was like i like i don't trust this <laughs> i'm like the yeah. the spouse that gets cheated on i'm just jilted like i'm going oh, yeah. to play live because at live poker I can buy in, I can cash out, I can get my money. Yep. I don't have to deal with the bank. I don't have to deal with a check from Singapore. No bullshit. <laughs> like I just, I want to, I want to play cards to get paid. It's, is that too much to ask? You know, that recent conversation with uh, several people, cause like, you know, quarantine, uh, you know, did okay, but like, I'm owed like, you know, low five figures, which I'm never going to see or just like, yeah, I mean, like, I'm not going to bother chasing down because, like, what's the chance of getting it? Like, less than 5%. Mm-hmm. So um, I'd rather stick with, quote, quote, make less, but be tangible. It'd be tangible. And I'm sure, like, all of us are owed quite a big sum of money from uh, loaning people, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, this is all of us, like, I know Sean's owed more than I am and I'm owed already like, you know, high five figures, but it's like, we're just never going to see it. So at some point you just stop being angry and accept it and just move on. I'm not even like super angry in a sense that like a lot of the people that I, I loaned, like I had a, like personal relations with. So I'm just like, if I'm helping them in life, you know, but at some juncture, it's kind of like you have to cut the ties. Yeah. I mean, you just move on. And then like, I'm, you know, I've done stuff that I'm not too happy about and have to make amends with those. Like, uh, everything's pretty clean, but like, I, you know, like I owe Elke a favor and like, you know, some other stuff, but it's the poker world, you know, you got to just like do what you can to navigate and figure it out. So how, tell me at what point in your career did you enter live at the bike scene like how long has live at the bike even been around I, i'm oh 16 years so when live at the bike was first around i was like who would watch this but i realized like other people who don't have a million hands online find that stuff interesting because if you can't play yourself what's the next best thing you watch it on camera like unfold instead of like you know like post-production work of highlights and manipulated you know like negranu crushing and helmuth being embarrassed like you know, not like they don't crush or, you know, we all make good plays. We all make bad plays. If you take all of our top 50 plays, we're all going to look like the best. You take all of our bottom 50 plays. We're going to look like the worst. Like we all, we all know this. Of course. So when, when you're in production, like you, you want to share the most compelling, com- compelling hands and yeah, make heroes and villains. Yeah. And like most people don't realize just how boring poker is <laughs> over the course of like a 10 hour session. Oh yeah. So I guess like we talked about like when black Friday happened, a lot of us, went to commerce and, you know, did various things. I'll only mention the people who are very public about going broke. Cause I went broke too. So me, Sean Snyder and Bryce Yaki, I'm sure countless people, we just really underestimated the variance of live. Um, and just played over our means. I think all of us are learned our lesson and it's not like we didn't know, like it's a little bit shame on us because like we, we knew, but we, whether it's pride, ego, like not tell, being mature. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about the moment, you know, how it felt to go broke. 
like when you were like, fuck. So in my case, and I think most of my peers would, would agree is like, while when you go broke, it is your fault. I had a lot of family issues and just like, I've talked about this on live the bike, but like when you hit like the world echelon and something or national echelon and your family still wants you to like quit that to do something else, it's kind of their bad but they wouldn't stop. And they wanted me to do things like, you know, program or, you know, like traditional Asian careers that I could never, never do. Like I went to a very competitive high school where um, one of my classmates was the 1995 and 1996 Olympic gold or not Olympic, sorry, Olympia math Olympia winner. And like one guy ended up being the mayor, like just a ton of overachievers academically. So in my mind, when I look in the mirror, I can't be these things. And, wholeheartedly make them my career when I've been the world level at something else and poker I'll conservatively say I was at the national level so like when they won't relent I only have one way to what I felt I only had one direction to go which was higher and higher up in what I can do which was poker and also had an endeavor with um, screenwriting I was financing but like it got to a point where the strain plus downswing, plus like the, I don't know if you remember the time the no limit hold'em and the limit hold'em games were drying up. The stud was dying. Um, then PLO came out. I did not understand the variance or technical skills of PLO back then. So I got torched there and I got torched in mixed games. And then uh, I was in a really bad mindset and apologized to my friends who were trying to get me in the right mindset. But uh yeah, it was it was bad times. And um, like when I went broke, I was just trying to recover. I had, again, family issues, friend issues. And I, you know, again, take the blame for a lot and made bad deals. And then at the bike one day, like Lyman was hosting a PLO game and I was trying to recover in life. And I had a project, which I showed you the casino game. Um, so and I like sat down 2015. Yeah, 2014, 13, 14, 15, somewhere around there. And then um, I sat down in Lyman's PLO game approximately 2015. I took a really bad beat in PLO. I don't remember what it was. He doesn't remember either. As we know, you know, you get sucked down in PLO, but it, it was like ridiculous. I forgot. It was like two outer in PLO or something like that. And then I told a joke and then Lyman's like, tell another one. And I told another one. He's like, tell another one. I told another one. And he's like, dude, come commentate on live with the bike. It's like, Okay. <laughs> Is it paid? It's like, yes. I'm like, done. <laughs> <laughs> so I need I have money. A, I, will, yeah. I will do this thing. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he kind of gave me the jump start there. And um, again, I was like, I was so, I was so bewildered. Like who would watch this and then interacted with the chat. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like it just like clicked to me that like people are interested in poker that don't have a million hands or they just don't know what's going on or they want to think that they know like the poker viewership is um an interesting crowd because on one side they want they want to feel like they're either peers or better than the people they see on camera like i you know we probably have this experience too we've seen a lot of people on high stakes poker back in the day in like 2005 and um people once you face them in person are just much better than when you see them on camera, probably some variable that you can see the whole cards when 
you know, they're on camera. Another thing is like, they're also different people when you play with them years later, you know, they're more experienced. So I think it's a big wake up call. And then, you know, same with live of the bike, like the people in chat, they want to feel like they're in other shows like the WPT and world series of poker. They want to feel like they want to check whether their play is good, you know, self-check. Like, what would this guy do? What would Garrett do? What would, you know, Dan Zach do? What would Andy do? Like, if they would do something similar, if they're doing something different, and then the viewers can be results-oriented. Like, you know, no one's going to accuse Dan of doing a move that wasn't well thought out, but say it looks weird on camera and the results are bad. They're like, oh, Dan Zach's not that good. <laughs> it's ludicrous, you know, for anybody to say. But, um. Yeah, it's kind of that like people want it's a roar poker's like a Rorschach. You want the way that you view the game to be the winning way to play. And then when results start catching up, whether it's losing or winning, then you kind of have some uh affirmation of whether that's true or not. It is tough because like you have absolute information and that's going to bias you in the way that you think about the hand and the way that you know you think you're going to perform in the exact setting with no, non-absolute information, right? Like it just, it changes things. There's a lot more pressure too. Like yeah. you're playing for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. The pressure level that you feel is going to be substantially ratcheted up compared to just watching, you know, in your bed, uh, winding down at the end of the day. And it's a video, you know, if you do something, it's on the internet for all time. So one thing it, I, you know, when I'm commentary and mentioned when you're playing on, when you're watching the screen, you don't see everything. Like, you know, I've played on live of the bike and I watch myself and the moves and like the camera doesn't pick up everything. So when somebody does like the best example is Garrett, like when he does something that's, you know, off from quote, quote standard, he probably saw something that, and is is not caught on camera even myself my hand and like some people have incredible live read abilities like you know obviously Garrett comes to mind but also like Alec Torelli like Ryan Fee like myself like our accuracy is just like scarily high like you know some people are just like very confident about their like live read abilities and yeah I mean like you should be very scared when people on camera just have incredibly high accuracy. The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy. Too tight, and they know what you have. Too loose, and you're easy to run over. Free Flop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your preflop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your preflop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop bootcamp. Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, 
had impressed me. I loved the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp. And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable. But I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about bootcamp blew you away? Like it started off slow. Like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general. Do you have any interesting takeaways from your boot camp experience? The most interesting thing about the boot camp, it's a pre-flop boot camp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post game as it did for my pre-game just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the boot camp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well. I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study? Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to, to know that stuff 10 years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. If you'd like to join the next round of Preflop Bootcamp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Well, I, think, I think in some ways, like, the camera benefits Garrett and those type of players because it, it makes more pressure. Like, and this is like what yes. those players, they want as much pressure as possible oh, yeah. because like whenever there's more pressure, then they're going to get more data points in which yes. to base their reads. And so they're going to play better. And so like, that's just these guys that perform very, very well under pressure and are able to read people very well. Like, yeah, they're, they're going to thrive on a live stream because you have, it's it just very natural for them to thrive in that environment. It's they're built for it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I tend to not want to, you know, throw too many uh, <laughs> opinions out there uh, because when you're commentating on live the bike, you're, you're, the commentator shouldn't be the star of the show. It's the poker. So yeah, now that we're here, I definitely have mentioned to Dan, Zach and Garrett, like watching them operate. I've like just learned so much of what I didn't do when I was being competitive. And I just really questioned myself to ever go back. I'm never, I'm just never going to go back and play high stakes competitively off camera. Like I'd, I'll do it on camera or if I need something like to stream something, 
but just like the amount of work talent and just like above the rim i guess uh thought process and execution i'm just like i'm I'm done i'm done i'm good (laughs) what is your what are your days look like now as it relates to live at the bike like how many hours what's going on with live at the bike give us give us some updates okay so there's going to be more an official announcement um in a few months but live at the bike got bought out and is going to be televised after a revamp. So who bought it out? Valleys. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the queue where I know of the big picture. And again, like in a few months, there's going to be a bigger announcement and uh, more fleshed out plans. But when that, until that happens, then, you know, I'm just going to say that what's going on now is in, preparation for that even even what's going on like even yeah even what's going on now with live of the bike is in preparation for that so what people see right now is kind of like the end of an era this is going to be live of the bike classic me brian and jj were hired back and um you know we're doing some stuff we have additional people coming in and Still going to be in LA? Well, obviously it's live at the bike, so it's got to be in LA, right? Yeah, I know of some of the bigger picture plans, but um, yeah, definitely. It's likely still going to be that room. There's going to be a lot of changes and they're still in discussion and live at the bike is the longest poker live stream out there and has the most um, high stakes episodes. And that's kind of the legacy that we're potentially going to uphold. And like I said, I'm, well, I don't think this was recorded, but people nowadays see me on the front end of live of the bike, but live of the bike's not really mine. Like I'm the Tim cook to Apple, like Apple belongs to Steve jobs. So like the original people that built this thing, and there's been a lot of staff and a lot of teamwork over the years. Um, and like, the people on the back end who you don't see and you don't hear get a lot of credit for, you know, pushing this thing forward to, you know, for 16 years, 16 years, maybe it's 17. Uh, anyway, whatever. It's 16, 16 years. 17, but, it's a while. It's been going for a decade and a half at least. Yeah. So um, there's people make comments about this could be better. That could be better. And it's like, for the most part, I would say 80 if not 90% plus we're aware, but the thing is we have a small team and a, and a limited budget and that's going to change. Good. And um, yeah. And there was like, I have, I have a influence on a key sector in live the bike, but clearly there's a lot of things I can't do, which other people would be better. Even if I had like infinite money, infinite time and um, and energy, like, I can't make live of the bike the best that it could be. So I think this next iteration, this like new era is going to try to push it to the next level. And it's just not going to end like live of the bike. Ideally like the world series and the WPT and, you know, poker stars or whatever are here to stay until like, 
as long as poker's still around. Like there's always these narratives, poker's dead, poker's dead. Well, poker can't really die unless the human race dies because like chess and poker are going to be with the human race. Yeah, if there's 10, 10 human beings left in the world. Poker will like, be played. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're going to play poker against each other. It's just... Yeah, two two days of the 365 days of the year, there is going to be poker night, you know, even if there's exactly. 10 people left. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, what What are your thoughts? Die. What are your thoughts on the Hustler live stream? Like, they they ramped up in the last few months, too. Um, do you consider them, like, sort of spinoff competition? Um, Like, they've been respectful to me, and I've been respectful of them. They've obviously done a good job there's some disagreements with um, the people running the, there and other people on live the bike. And it just, it kind of is what it is. I don't, I don't really know what to say. They're like Ryan Feldman. He works really hard. He always wanted to do things like his way. And now he gets a chance and it's, you know, it, it's doing well. I don't know. I don't know how to quantify it more. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, on it, when, when live at the bike started, you know, I say competitors, but like, there's a lot of live streams these days. Like there's a lot of poker rooms that, that have live stream games with commentary. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody's playing different games. <laughs> like, uh, I, I don't know how, how more to say, I like, think like I asked some, and the thing is like the production now for live at the bike is years old, it's like four years old. So like when something new comes out, then something new comes out. Just the natural course. And like, you know, live bikes can be revamped into a new iteration. And that's just another another chapter, I guess. I don't we've been around long enough. I don't know when you start, like the early two thousands. Two thousand and four, like the beginning oh. of two thousand four. I was Okay, so it's like twenty years old. Yeah, so it's like fifteen years from you. We've seen so much that like what goes on is just kind of a blip in poker history. Whereas like, I guess the first probably three years, if not maybe five, but probably first three, when everything's fresh in our eyes, we're just like, Oh my God, we have all these opinions. I remember when I first saw Gus Hansen on a WPT, I'm like, Oh my God, this guy's like playing so bad because he like plays loose. And then I'm like, Oh, this guy plays in position all the time and just like wrecks people. And when he plays out of position, he has these crazy lines. So at that era, I don't know what's going on now, but in that era, he was just like so far above the curve. And yeah, like, I, uh, it's funny. I, I remember one of those WPTs. There's an interview with Freddie Deeb and Gus busts Freddie out, and in like the post interview, uh, Freddie's just like that guy. He he plays bad. He's like, uh, sit me down <laughs> against that guy, and I want to play that guy every single day until the end of time. Like it was like it it was pretty hilarious and the reality is that like gus came from backgammon background and understood equities and understood the math and like understood aggression and yep. pot odds just very very well and, and like people didn't back then and so it looked like he was doing some things that were bad but the reality yeah. was like he was just way ahead of everybody and in the same way that like you know people today that are way ahead of the curve people will criticize and say that they play yeah. so bad. But like, <laughs> How do they play so bad, but they keep winning? Well, they're just doing things that people are not aware of that are very good. I was just in a private game recently, like a, a month ago, and there are a bunch of like old school, and I say old school by like, you know, you, they were active when you came out after Black Friday and they were commenting on Garrett and they were like, oh, he's probably a small winner back then. I'm like, 
do we see the same people? Like I remember back then they would call Garrett like a donkey and stuff. I'm like, are, do we see the same player? Like I see this guy who just like, like sees the matrix, you know? And I'm like, these guys like see 10, four offsuit and just like, <laughs> I don't know. I, um, I think it's, yeah. it's just maybe how certain people are wired. Like I'm very overly cautious to minimize anybody's ability, especially when they seem to be beating the game like yep. that. I'm very curious and I, I'm honest. I don't even really love disparaging people like to this day, but I, but I think that we can all learn from somebody and like, you know, Melissa Burr was on the podcast, obviously a yeah. uh, world-class mixed game player. And, and she spoke about how, even if a player is like really bad, sometimes they sort of like stumble into something that's really oh, yeah. good that you can yeah. take away. And so like, when you just discount people and say, Oh, they're a fish, like they just played so bad. It, that, that to me is like a, a signal that the person you're talking to is probably not a <laughs> super high level poker player. Yeah. So when, um, again, this interesting, cause I haven't been active competitively for a few years before quarantine, even during quarantine, like, and now on global poker, there's a lot of people who gave me respects that just like, if I tried, I could compete. I, I have a lot of me against myself. Um, so I was, potentially skeptical but then now i'm performing and you know those guys were right because you know potentially it's the same 52 cards and like it's not like abilities like leave you but um yeah i mean just i'm gonna name drop some online names but they were more for limit holder than anything so the first one is derb d-r-e-r-b on party poker he was doing like when everybody was so <laughs> kind of reminds me of the gto guys now but most of the community on two plus two was very like tag, 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 you know, and Derb was this like lag and just like running over people and just, you know, getting thin value bits and stuff like that. And just everyone's like, this guy's so bad yet. Like we could see his graph freaking straight up stick man on poker stars, uh, too much action on full tilt. I think Mr. Bunny was kind of like that too, but just like people were. Yeah. I mean, just, labeled by the elitist community as not good yet they were performing there were a lot of people in you know no limit space like you know garrett djf and a couple of them at some junctures were just so far ahead with like riling up the table running people over and with the live reads you know i'm not really active now so i can't comment so much but a lot of people who are still in the mix seem to be more the you know gto camp rather than um exploitative or or riling up the the field yeah i mean i, I i'm not exactly sure like uh, i guess i don't have a real great pulse on the live poker community because i don't play a lot of live poker i live in atlanta and there's not a lot of live <laughs> poker around here right um and i don't really spend a ton of time watching the streams uh, personally, because, you know, I spend when you all- play, you don't watch. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's why I tell people when you play poker, you don't really watch this stuff. So um, I don't ever, excuse me, take insult with. Do you remember? Watch stuff. Yeah. Do you remember Auntie Roro on Party Poker? Like I, I still no. to this day have nightmares about that screen name. Like, I don't really? know who that was. Uh, they played the 3060 game, probably 2004, 2005. And like holy shit they beat my brains in on party poker like just day in and day out 
2004 and five, I know I was mainly no limit. Like I was playing the 1020. Um, and then in 2004 or five, I, I also switched over to Hollywood poker. I, I always like asking if anybody like who, who was auntie Roro? Like I want to have her on the <laughs> podcast or, or what, him. I, it's, like it's, it's gotta be him, but yeah, actually the name is starting to ring a bell. It's, it's just tough because poke, like, like we mentioned poker is a long-standing history. So there's a lot of things that are just like blips and you're like, remember that, remember that, or just like, you know, there's so many things to come. So when I look at poker now, it's different from before where I'm just like, from a macro management perspective, let's just say there was a pre moneymaker boom era. Then when the moneymaker boom happened, when black Friday happened, uh, you know, there's, there's certain eras that are just like shook up the entire industry and everybody had to deal with it. Um, and then all these other things are like, there's, there's great stuff, but like, you know, the legalization of online poker is coming soon, presumably like that's going to shake up everything, you know, more so than anything else that could happen. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And there's like, I've mentioned this, I don't mention this in commentary that much, but there's a couple of phenomenon that are going to come up that I feel like are really going to shake the industry. So when it comes to the scope of like live the biker hustlers, like they are great for the poker industry, but they're not going to shake things up like black Friday or the moneymaker boom. So yeah, I know. I don't know. Like, I don't want to, I'm just looking more towards like the, the macro world of poker, I guess. Like, I mean, you know, there, there's, there's so many people like, this is a common thing. Like I, I, I coach a couple of kids and they would talk about elite players. I'm like elite players every single year. There's like, you know, you could say a top 50, maybe a top 100, maybe a top thousand, but that's like, that's like the same thing as like we talked about with um, being number one ranked in an esport or a 4.0 at Harvard or Berkeley. Like, they're very common. Like there's very few phenomena that are just like Phil Ivy, where just like after 30 years, even if he's not the best, he's still, you know. Seidel, I mean. Yeah, exactly. Eric Seidel. There's some phenomenon that like, you know, I'm going to say it right now, Phil Helmuth, like I'm going to defend that guy. Like the amount of shade that's thrown at him is just so undeserved. And I feel like it was a manipulation from the media back in 2005, where they just showcase like hands where he blows up or just happens to make the wrong decision. I don't know. I like, it is very difficult to quantify who the greatest of all time is. And like, I don't while think I would, Phil wants to be the greatest of all. Like, I think Phil in the 2000s, Phil played the poker boom better than any other person in the world. And like him, yeah, I agree. Getting airtime through blowing up was so beneficial to him and his brand and brand, all the opportunities yeah. that kind of oh, came yeah. his way downstream. Like, he was playing the brand game when nobody else really was. And yeah. that, that to me is like, obviously shows that he's very intelligent thinking strategic human being. Um, and I, and I actually, I agree with you that I think Phil gets lots of shade. I make fun of Phil Helmuth from time to time on the podcast, 
myself, but like the guy's had tons of success and he's had it in many different eras and you can't really take that away from him. You can't really deny it. uh, I think he and Chris Moneymaker are the two most important people in poker from a macro management perspective, because uh, like while it's celebrated like Phil Ivy or, you know, some wizards, they don't really bring people into the game like Phil Helmuth does. So for poker to stay alive, uh, Phil Helmuth probably does the best, one of the best, if not the best job of keeping people interested in poker. Because whether the narrative is that he is the greatest of all time or that he sucks, like part of what people brings people in poker is they need to think that somebody sucks because the, the, the fallacy of poker is that you play because you think you can win or you're not nearly as, as big of a deficit as you potentially are against the competition. Once that illusion fades that you're not a winning player or you're, you're a bigger loser than losing player than you think you are, then you stop playing or yeah, you mostly it, stop playing. It's not so fun. Um, I think that Helmuth and what you're speaking to is polarization and yeah, polarization is just typically good for business. Whether people hate you or love you, the last thing you want is indifference. And like the thing about Helmuth is people watch him to see him lose and other people watch him to see him win, but yeah. everybody watches. It's the same like, with Conor McGregor in MMA, like some people love him and they watch to see him win. And some people absolutely despise him and just watch to see him lose. And like, that's why they're draws, you know, that's why they're compelling. That's why people want to watch. They don't want to watch the GTO wizard that just like is totally even keel, you know, across a five hour stream and doesn't have any outbursts. And like, that's just like, yeah, you, you don't really have any interest in them as a human being and you don't any rooting interest. I mean, it's not just that, like the GTO wizards, like they're going to do stuff that looks off and I'm going to trust that they're right because, you know, they're, they're battling every day, but from the viewer, it's like, okay, that's, that's right. You know, big deal. It also doesn't apply to like mid stakes games, and low stakes games in which most of the viewers are. And, and, and con- yeah. when, as a commentator, when you try to describe it and talk about it, like it's going to be so over the heads of the viewer that like it doesn't make for like real compelling uh viewing and i have negative mastery when it comes to that stuff because like the fields that i play in they don't really apply so i love hearing dan zach talk about him because you know even if he's not active in no limit he is very closely integrated with the theory and of course i talk with a bunch of super pros too that um you know, explain stuff to me. So I, I kind of get a lot of spill off, but yeah, it's just like the V the people watching and what's going on the screen. It's not hitting the, the supply isn't hitting the demand. That's people why like Gabe yeah. Kaplan was great, right? Gabe Kaplan could commentate in a way that anybody could understand. Yeah. You know, we've been struggling like, with that, with live of the bike and, you know, all, all poker shows struggle with that because people like, you know, Ali Najad and Nick Shulman are very good because they're able to, you know, break things down succinctly and quantify at the same time, like 
uh, I've I've heard people say they don't like their commentary because just nothing's universal. Like the audience is at such a wide range of receiving this like monologue that you just can't hit ever everything. I guess. Well, the people you try to hit are the people that are watching poker on shows, right? Like that's the yeah. avatar, the demographic you're targeting. And I think that like earlier in the show, we kind of alluded to the fact that like, we're, we're not the demographic. We're not the demographic know? that, I, that I, they're speaking yeah. to. Yeah. Even like the high stakes games on live of the bike, like Chris Brewer mentioned this, like I just have no interest in watching like no one hold it. It's not like that. Obviously I greatly respect the, the guys who are especially contemporary wizards and executors, but just like, I've seen it all and done it all. And just like a <laughs> joke with Chris Brewer too, that like the guy on camera, who's the most bored is probably the best player. <laughs> when people are debating like who the best player at the table is like, who looks the most bored, <laughs> who, who looks the most excited. The person who's most excited is probably the biggest fish <laughs> It's <laughs> joking, but like you, you get the point. Like, um, it's, uh, Matthew Marvin actually texting this morning. He's like, that I should be showcased more. And I'm like, I'm boring to watch because you're, people are trying to, they're, they're looking to find a flaw in me in my execution. Like I'm definitely no goat or like contemporary, like, you know, competitive player, but my accuracy is so high that it's just boring. It's like, like there's no, if, if a viewer is watching me, there's nothing to see. It's like I either execute something perfect slash close to perfect, or somehow I misjudged one street. So, you know, people like Garrett who are willing to make like $200,000 bluffs, like <laughs> that's interesting. You know, it's even interesting for me if I were to watch poker, but when you see people like say me or Alec Torelli or something, and just like, you know, I know Alec Torelli gets thrown a lot of shade, but you can't deny that, you know, he's a world-class player and has really high accuracy, like live and on stream when they're just like accuracy over and over. You're just, it's not that exciting. You want to see something like off or weird, you know? Sure. You want to see, you want to see a mistake. You want to see a big laydown or a bluff and an inopportune time when you just dust your stack off. Like, I mean, yeah. think about like, probably the most famous hand at live at the bike or one of the most famous hands is like when Andy got stacked by Garrett, or not Garrett, and he got stacked uh, Jackie. by uh, yeah Jackie. Jackie. Yeah. Um, There's so I, many opinions on that, and it's just like I feel really bad for Andy, especially for um, because of like training sites is beating up on him. Like no one's gonna deny, and he doesn't deny that he quote quote made a mistake. How big was that mistake or slash mistakes, and how many of us have literally done the same thing or even ten times worse? Sure. So, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I can't play a session of poker and not have at least one hand that I'm just ashamed of in my database. And oh, so yeah. <laughs> Andy, you know, Andy just happened to play a hand poorly in front of a live audience for a shit ton of money. And it ended up being like the, the biggest pot at live at the bike. And that's, you have all that combination of things. Plus Andy's a compelling character and people like him as oh, a person. Yeah. So yeah. all those, guy. you know, and at the end of the day too, I, I would say that through Andy making that mistake, it probably raised his profile. It probably gained popularity for him. Like it just, there are a lot of things that kind of go, go into it. And I think that if anybody says that like, 
you know, Garrett doesn't play hands on a regular basis that he's ashamed of. They just don't understand poker and they don't understand that. Like Garrett's ashamed of a lot of his hands. I mean, we're shooting at moving targets. Like we're working with limited information and doing the best we can. And like, you're going to look like an idiot sometimes. And that's just the nature of this game. So, um, you know, training sites have an ulterior motive of like selling their material. So when they criticize or critique, I don't want to say criticism. When they critique a hand or when they critique Andy's hand, I feel like some of the stuff was unfair. Do you have any, I mean, you're in the, you were in the LA streets, 1020 yeah. no limit and potentially plus what, what's your like, I guess, hand analysis of that. Oh, the, the yeah. Andy hand. Yeah. Um, so I believe Jackie like cold flatted a three bet Garrett three bet with like ace king suited. Andy had queen 10 and Jackie. Andy opened, Andy opened with queen 10, I believe in the cutoff or hijack. I mean, it, quote, quote, makes a big difference when it comes to theoretical EV, but just whatever. And then Garrett three bets, ace king. Jackie calls with nines out of the big blind. Andy calls, which, you know, arguably can be a fold as well. Yeah. But you're on a show. It's a live setting. So let's presume that you know, I do stuff on camera. All of us do stuff on camera all the time. We would never do off camera. Sure. I mean, all right. You play the queen 10 off. Like we can, yeah. I, I think that it is, it is going to be a fold technically, but like, oh, play of course. It. Yeah. We all know this. He knows this, but we're on camera, so we can't like certain things. We're going to. We don't have to, but we're going to like head towards a certain direction of less play. Let's yeah. play. So, and then the flop is like queen nine x and yeah. check check through queen right? nine six queen nine six and then check, turns yeah a queen. check through check through turns a queen Jackie leads. He leads pretty um, big, right? Yeah, he leads pretty big, and then Andy raises, in which like. I don't know if people are aware of Andy's history with Jackie, but it's not like their first session together. They have clearly sure. have history and flatting there is like so polarized, you know, from it's like almost makes his hand incredibly polarized. So I don't mind like him mixing a raise there. Um, well, raising and, you is know, polarized too. <laughs> it, it is, but it's, it's all the like, actions are polarized at that point. Yeah, you're, you're right. But at the same time, like, I think he gets way too much flack for raising there when how many times do, you know, hardcore players like thin raise or get thin value. And also you want to like, Garrett's behind him too in position, like, you know. I don't mind Garrett being behind me when I have trips. Like what's, what's Garrett going to do? Like, like, how how does Garrett um, take advantage of this situation? I think. I think that like Garrett's going to fold more often than not after not c-betting the flop. I would say the problem with raising the turn for me is like you're reopening the action. Um, yeah. You're re- reopening the action and opening the door for uh, not being able to realize your positional advantage on the river. And I think that like you've, you've got a hand that is obviously a good hand, but like if three bets go in on the turn, it's bad news bears for the queen 10. So... None of us are going to uh, say that this hand was played, say, above the rim well, so to say. But and and like Andy did lose a lot of streets. But, you know, the I think the potential unfairness that was thrown on is people like I've heard a lot of reviews and they don't mention that if he's going to get three streets, which is a bet raise and then a bet on the river, he has to raise somewhere and raising on the turn is more likely to going to get him three streets when in fact, what happened was the worst. And just like he loses a bajillion streets 
instead. Right. right. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, it basically, I think flatting on the turn is, I mean, it's what I would do almost every time. Yeah. I wouldn't raise, but once he did raise, like once he gets three bet, um, I think that's another spot that where is. like, yeah, we, we, we pretty much, Jackie just is going to have a deficit of hands that want to bet three bet there because like Andy has nines, like Andy has boats, Andy has lots of trips in his range. And like, that's just not something that most sane people are going to be fucking with. Yeah. Yeah. Again, this isn't a debate of whether there were mistakes made. It's more just like, like people are piling on Andy when it's like, we've all been there. (laughs) Sure. We, we all make so many mistakes. Like, like I said, I'm ashamed of many hands that I play. And like, this one was just, very public and then on the river once the board double pairs i think that there's very strong yeah. case for checking back and not value betting um yeah. because it's like you're hoping that like jackie bet three bet a nine x on the turn which is like or sixes yeah or yeah six is full. it was it was queen it was uh queen nine six turn queen river nine yeah, so you're so, trying to get yeah. trying to get value out of like sixes, and yeah, which is very optimistic, obviously. Yeah, it's pretty optimistic, and again, we open the door to put in another two bets on the river, which is like not what we want to do. So, yeah, I mean, like basically, yeah, basically, I think Andy also spoke about being sort of emotionally compromised in the hand where he had lost a few pots right before then, which like that's gonna that's gonna cloud judgment, that's gonna have effects, and, and so. Again, it was just like a perfect storm of things that ended up with Andy losing a massive pot. And uh, again, we've all been there, right? Like, yeah. I think it. I think Andy did play the hand. Uh, he did make mistakes, but oh, like yeah. we, everybody makes himself. mistakes, right? Like, yeah. so I think that's that's the thing. Like, you know, uh, obviously he's my friend, and I'm not going to say that he played the hand well by any means. But people are like piling on when it's like. Dude, you know he didn't play the hand quote quote well, but there were reasons that he played like that. And all of us who are, you know, competitive players or even recreational players have all done things like infinitely, you know, big larger mistakes than that. And just like, you know, have a little freaking hard compassion of the guy playing on camera, I guess. Yeah. I mean, but so. that's 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 the deal, right? We Yeah. No, nope, that's the everybody signs up to play on camera. You take the good with the bad, the praise with the criticism and those you guys got a lot of yeah th- those guys of i think they're they're strong you know all yep, those guys very. that play on stream they are mentally fucking warriors and it's really hard <laughs> to rattle them so yeah and uh, you know we're all used to negative comments and i always like you know obviously i'm running the front end so i'm gotta be as protective as possible for all the players on there when uh you know their negative comments so it's like it's such a touchy balance because like you can't pick you can't time out or ban people who are just like critiquing play but just like it doesn't feel good no like for sure yeah it doesn't i mean you know i i i made training videos for card runners i don't know 10 years or go or so and shout like card runners <laughs> yeah shout out to card runners um and there were sessions where i would start doing my play and explain video and like make a mistake and be like, Ooh, like, do I want to keep this in the video? And at some point I just realized, fuck it. Like this is what poker is. Like it's inauthentic to just cut out all of the spots where you're confused or you don't really know, or you just make a major mistake. Like you just have to play through that. That's part of the poker experience is making a mistake, falling flat on your face, 
getting back up and continuing on the grind to play at a high level. And to take that out or to minimize it or pretend like it doesn't exist just doesn't serve anybody. Yeah. And, you know, like Helmus quoted Dewan, like, let's see if you're even around five years. I'm willing to bet Andy's still going to be around five years. So. I mean, Andy's been around, you know, since the at least the early 2000s. Like, I remember playing at him with Commerce or playing with him at Commerce with like, you know, giant chip stacks and like oh, yeah. just <laughs> acting like the fastest acting player that you play against. Um, so yeah, he, he's been around forever and he'll continue to be around as long as he wants to be around in the poker yeah. world. And if he's not around, it's because he decided doesn't he doesn't want, want to play poker anymore. Yeah, I mean, like, um, I guess unbeknownst to the public, like when I talk to, say, Andy, Garrett or whatever, Dan, oh, not Dan, because he actually, I do ask him poker questions. We almost never talk about poker. We just like talk about like life, you know? And just, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, like, Garrett's definitely helped my mental health. He does that to the public. Like people email him, um, you know, he will give you life advice on mental health and just like some stuff that, you know, I'm pretty weak in. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's been very helpful. Like, you know, more so than any poker lesson he <laughs> potentially give me. <laughs> yeah. Garrett, so. Garrett's a pretty good dude. Um, Wayne, we've, so we're at about the hour and a half mark here for this conversation. And I know that we have one more talking point to speak about directly before we part ways. So I'll ask you the question of what's a project you're working on right now that's near and dear to your heart? So, yeah, people see Live with the Bike and me there. And um, Live with the Bike is an important part of my life, but my actual baby is Two Hand Holden. It's a casino game. Um, I patented it in 2015. Um, license agreement was signed in 2000. 17 february and because of like the doj and just like uh you know covid it hadn't hasn't been released so the url for the demo is play and the number two and letters hh.com and you're dealt four cards you see a flop the dealer has um three cards you split the two whole cards into two sets of uh two whole cards and you could check a raise either based on the flop and then deals turn in river and the dealer plays best two out of three. So um, that should be released this year at commerce and I'm hoping Cosmo as well. So just to add on to, you know, the many things I'm doing. Yeah. Um, that's a big one. Getting a, getting a game approved for going live is like a really big deal, man. Congratulations. I know that that's the culmination of just many years of exceptionally, <laughs> exceptionally hard work that probably nobody will ever see or be aware of. Oh. Yeah. And that's the thing about like live of the bike too. It's like, obviously like Garrett is like the star and, you know, but, but just like it, he communicates to me that, you know, and me to the rest of the team that he appreciates all the hard work in the back end, which is a lot of freaking stuff. Like we're, we're getting stuff done. Like even my own personal brand and poker career is really taken uh, a backseat to, you know, what goes on, on the screen for live of the bike. But, um, yeah, I mean, two and hold them is my baby, and like uh, one, there's there's more stuff coming up, and yeah, I think you and I, Brad, both have a lot of stuff coming up that people don't know about yet, but <laughs> we'll continue. That's I'm gonna. Stuff, I don't even know about stuff that's coming up. I, oh I yeah, I, I can <laughs> never like this time last year. I can. I mean, quarantine aside, like I have been literally unable to predict so many things that happen, like in the world and my own life that 
yeah, it's surprising. We just have to like just keep adjusting. Yeah. But when the game does get released, um, I'm gonna come back here and put the link in the comments section below. Um, and you know, yeah, it'll be on the show page too. Like we'll we'll put the link on the show page so the listener can click through. Uh, you showed it to me beforehand. It's actually kind of, it's, it's, I mean, I guess that's a point to be addictive and fun. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a pretty fun game. <laughs> and and it's just like, uh, what's great is like, it kind of like when people comment on the game, it's kind of like when we first played poker, like the first, you know, year, two, three years, we have all these like ideas and theories about the game. And it's just, we'll, we'll see like the player gets the, it's from a design designer perspective. I finally get to see what it's like when people with fresh eyes, like look at your thing rather than, you know, like, you know, I've been a competitive gamer. So I'm the one who usually looks at designs through fresh eyes. So sure. It's just a different experience. For sure, man. And best of luck with the release of your game. Um, play to hh.com, right? Yeah. Is the URL. Get, get Lyman on the pod. I've tried. He he said he was going to come on, and then like I he'll come him, on. He'll I sent, come a, on. I sent I, him a message, and he like never responded. So I was no, like, no, okay. no, fuck that guy. I'll get him on. Like, <laughs> dude, he will listen to me. So um, he's he, he's meaning to. He's meaning to. He, like I talked to him before, and he, there must have been some scheduling thing. But uh, he'll come on. Yeah, these things like fall through the cracks, and like I've got episodes planned out for probably the next two months. So I'm not like, you know, there's no rush. It's not really time sensitive. Yeah, there's so. no there's no rush, but definitely get him on so. for sure, man. Um. So, and final question here for the Chasing Poker Greatness listener, where can they find more about you on the World Wide Web? Um, a lot of it's now really fragmented. Like uh, my YouTube is really taking a backseat to running the front end of Live of the Bike. I don't know. Like uh, for the interim, just subscribe to liveofthebike.com. You're going to see some changes in the upcoming months. And, um, you know, when two hand holding comes out, rest assured, like every gaming community that I'm involved in, whether it's poker, Starcraft, Hearthstone, blah, blah, blah. Like they, they're going to, they're going to hear. Yeah. Play, so, play to HH, play the game. You'll be, uh, interacting with a little bit of Wayne's soul there. At yeah. the casino. Very um, much so. Thank you, man. Thank you for your time and your energy. Very grateful. Best thank of you, luck. Brad. Excited to see you know, all the exciting projects that are about to come to fruition. I'm excited to see what you have coming up too. So peace out, man. Later. Thanks for listening to chasing poker greatness. You can subscribe on Apple podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com to get the newsletter, join the greatness village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.